You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Annalise Stevenson, the brainy governor of Illinois, who both in 1952 and 1956 had the tough challenge of running for president against the popular Dwight Eisenhower, liked to tell a story that seemed to sum up his long-shot chances in both elections. Stevenson listened to a farmer complain about President Eisenhower, President Eisenhower's farm policy. Alas, he thought, there might be a voter here. But when Stevenson asked why people weren't mad at Eisenhower, the farmer replied, Oh, him? Well, no one connects him with the administration. Stevenson told the story to his friends and associates to show how hard it was campaigning against a popular general. Stevenson had a few issues in the 1956 election, the economy, Eisenhower's inaction to help Hungary during its attempted revolt against the Soviet Union, even the Suez Crisis, which Stevenson felt was bungled, but nothing stuck to Ike. The frustration felt by Adelaide Stevenson was no doubt shared by another candidate years later, Bob Dole in 1996. Running against the president in a time of peace and with a booming economy, Dole began the year with a deficit in the polls that he was never able to erase. Where's the outrage, he muttered, half a campaign slogan and half an expression of frustration that there was very little to criticize with Bill Clinton's success in besting the Congress and the booming economy in 90s America. With some perspective, it might be reassuring to these folks that they were not facing the usual presidents. They were facing highly unusual presidents. Both Eisenhower and Clinton had done something unusual. They had lost the House to the opposition party, something that would appear to be the rejection of their presidencies, and then went on two years later to win the presidency. If running against a popular incumbent seems tough, the situation Chester Arthur was in leading a divided party was even tougher, having taken back the House in 1880 with the election of James Garfield. His Republicans had lost the House just two years later in 1882. A party divided between the mugwumps or liberal Republicans who would rather support a Democrat than see a Republican from the other faction, the stalwarts, win, put Republicans in a weakened position. The Democrats were certain to run Grover Cleveland, the popular governor of New York, and without New York, and with no hopes of any state south of the Mason-Dixon line going Republican, they stood to lose. Arthur was unable to obtain a nomination, a nomination for which he did nothing to get and wasn't even sure if he'd accept, if given, because of his ill health. In the end, Republicans swapped out Arthur and decided on James Blaine, a respected former Speaker of the House. But they failed to beat Grover Cleveland in that election of 1884. And in the twilight of James Knox Polk's presidency, his Democratic Party struggled to recover from the beating they took from the Whigs in the 1846 congressional midterm elections. For president in 1848, they selected Lewis Cass, a senator from Michigan. Cass was a compromise candidate for the Democrats. 
did not take a position on slavery, which was dividing the party at the time, but he proposed legislation that squatters in the western states could decide the issue for themselves. But no compromiser was going to help the Democrats in 1848. At that point, the most important state for the Democrats, New York, was divided between the hunkers and the barn burners. Hunkers were slavery supporters who hunkered for office, they said. Barn burners were were called that because it was said they would rather burn the barn down to kill the rats. In other words, they were willing to dismantle the party as long as it meant an end to slavery. In the 1848 election, many of these barn burners supported Whigs, or the Free Soil candidate, former President Van Buren, and the election went to the Whigs of Zachary Taylor. Arthur and James Polk are examples of presidents who lost the House and two years later were not able to hand over the keys of the White House to the opposing party. If the six-year itch omen is well known, that is the now well-established political trend that a president loses seats in the sixth year of his presidency, with only Clinton in 98 as an exception over the entire history of the American presidency. This particular omen, that is, that when the House is lost, a president may be in trouble, is not thought of as much. And if that trend to kick out a two-term presidential incumbent's party in Congress is known as the six-year itch, this might be known as the two-year ditch. Two years after losing the House, the president or his party, more often than not, loses the presidential election. Losing enough seats to cause a loss of the House would seem to be a strong indicator that the president's party is in trouble. Only three presidents, Truman, Clinton, and Eisenhower, were able to survive the loss of the House to be re-elected president two years later. These are incumbents, but in a more fitting example to today's politics, only two presidents hand the keys of the White House over to another person in their own party after losing the House, Washington and Grant. Washington was able to secure the White House for his friend and Federalist John Adams, despite the House being taken over by the new Jeffersonian Republican parties in the sixth year of Washington's presidency, 1794. Ulysses S. Grant was able to pass the White House to the Republican governor of Ohio, Rutherford B. Hayes. But both of these examples of presidents after losing the House, passing the White House to a member of their own party, have serious caveats. George Washington didn't technically have a party. He disliked parties and would not have considered himself a Federalist. In fact, his successor, John Adams, also shared this belief. He considered himself and his administration nonpartisan in the matter of Lincoln. And although commonly referred to as a Federalist, he had a dislike for what he considered to be Alexander Hamilton's party. And to look at the other example, Grant did see a Republican, rather it be Hayes, follow him. But that's only after his party lost the counted popular vote and won as a result of protracted dispute by electoral commission. But if we ignore these caveats and count these examples, it means that just five presidents have been able to keep the White House or hand the keys over to the same party two years after losing the House. And the exceptions don't provide much hope for the GOP in the current situation. Bush is not running as an incumbent in 2008, which eliminates three of the five examples. Let's look at the numbers. The House has been lost by presidents 13 times, 1796, 
1842, 1846, 1874, 1882, 1890, 1894, 1910, 1930, 1946, 1954, 1994, and now 2006. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And I want to be careful how I define a loss of the house. I define loss of the house as the president's party was in control after an election, is no longer in control, and the opposing party is in control. There's a reason for the strict definition, which I'll get into a little bit later. So presidents have prevailed in at least in getting themselves or their own party elected to the White House in five out of 13 cases. So about 38% of presidents who lost the House were able to pass on the presidency through their own party. And one might say, well, 38% is more than a third. It's not great, but it's not impossible either. And it certainly does seem to make this trend not as strong as some other trends in politics. We also have to consider that part of the reason that there are less instances of the loss of the House is that some presidents came into office with the opposite party already in control. Among those, John Quincy Adams, Gerald Ford, George Bush Sr., all three of whom were not able to pass the White House to their own party after their presidencies. Now let's look at 1854. I need to define the loss of the House in the way I do because of 1854, and it may be a point of controversy with some. I am not including the 1854 election, in which after the Kansas-Nebraska bill, now this is the bill that opened up slavery into the territories, and when there would be a revolt against Democrats, particularly in the North, and a new party, the Republican Party, would form from Whigs and Northern Democrats. 
Democrat President Franklin Pierce would see many of his Democrats lose and a new Republican Party take as many as 46 seats from Democrats. Certainly, it was a thumping for Pierce. And technically, Pierce's Democrats became the minority party in Congress in 1854. But I will argue that they still held a plurality of Congress, 84 seats as compared to 62 for the Americans or know-nothings. 60 declared Whigs, and 46 of the new Republicans. As a sign of how divided this new Congress was, it took almost six months to pick a speaker. And during that time, a Democratic speaker remained in control. The balance of the power in this Congress was held by a third party, the Know-Nothings, or the American Party. And they were the ones that ended up picking the new speaker. And some of these Americans or Know-Nothings sided with Pierce on policy, meaning that Franklin Pierce still had a reasonable amount of control over the new House in the last two years of his presidency. And in the divided house that he faced, the weakened house, with a protracted battle for speaker, he certainly didn't face the same opponent that George W. Bush does now in the 2006 Democrats, or, or Clinton did in 1995. We have a correlation between a president losing the House of Representatives and two years later his party, or him, losing the presidential election. But do we have causation? Well, that's a question. Does the loss of the House cause the party to lose the election? We can speculate that there is certainly a loss of agenda. Now, Americans tend to want to see the president as a person of action, uh, the bully pulpit leading the agenda. When you have a House that's controlled by the opposition party, the first thing that happens is you lose the news story. As the House can propose legislation, the House is driving the agenda, sending bills at the president to sign or veto. These are all speculations, though, and the only thing we do know is that there's correlation. This is an omen. You lose the House, you're going to tend to lose the presidency. Now, let's take the other side to this idea of a, a two-year ditch. Uh, there are only so many instances of a loss of the House in a presidency. So maybe we're just dealing with a small sample size. And there are exceptions. As much as they can be explained away in some cases, they are exceptions. So while the trend of an incumbent in his sixth year losing seats in the House has only one exception in the entire 218 years of the American presidency, there are several exceptions to the two-year trend, no matter how many caveats there are for all those exceptions. But while it's not a perfect tool, it is a useful tool. And there are too many instances of presidents who lose the House and then not winning the presidency for their party to ignore it. But taking it out of the idea of a general trend and now applying it only to 2008, we can say that even if the two-year ditch is not a perfect trend, even if it will not always work in every election that where a president has lost a house, they will go on to lose the next election or their party will. Consider it added to other factors in 2008, which together seem to present a lot of burdens for the GOP. This is also election year, which the, the GOP is saddled with an unpopular war and the burden of an incumbent whose poll ratings will not be helpful to a GOP nominee. If Clinton was able to use his poll numbers to win a showdown with Congress, if Truman was able to use support for his foreign policy to win a second term, the 2008 GOP nominee, whether it's Romney, Giuliani, or McCain, or someone else, will have none of those advantages. Think of these as additional indicators, which in addition 
to the two-year ditch being sort of a potential indicator. There's all these normal indicators that seem to be in the Democrats' favor. If there is such a two-year ditch in politics, that is, if Americans favor ditching the incumbent party two years after the midterms in which they elect the opposing Congress, then it may be the case that the GOP can't win in 2008, or at least it's so highly improbable that the battle to succeed Bush and the Republican primary is a fool's errand, and Giuliani and McCain and Romney can bash each other all they want. No one's going anywhere. The other consequence of this is that it could mean that the real action for 2008 is in the Democratic primary. That America may have become like an urban congressional district, let's say a congressional district in a Chicago ward. The general election is going to be anticlimactic, and all the action is in the Democratic primary. And many Americans who don't normally participate in primaries should now take a serious look at Hillary, Obama, Edwards, Biden, and Richardson and what goes on in their states early next year. If the history of presidents who have lost the House and now are seeking to have their party hold on to the White House is any indication the Democratic primary may be voters' only chance to truly pick a president. With history beating up politics, I'm Bruce Carlson. Thank you for listening. I do want to thank Kevin for the suggestion for this podcast. I'm pretty good with topics for a little while, but I'm you know always looking for other ideas. Go to the website, myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com, get the Chester Arthur t-shirt, comment on this podcast or others. Uh, look forward to hearing from you, myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow.